since it's almost noon, in the thought process that I'm going to cut my sermon short, I will. I really will. I'm going to, I'm going to shorten it to modify to the service. But where I can't cut, I won't. Because I want you to get to just of this. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we're in great need of you this morning. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Stand up here. You talk. You teach. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you can remember the text, Hebrews 11, verse 8 to 11. I'm only going to read verse 11. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham, oops, Abraham was a righteous man. We look at the other texts in Peter, second chapter, and we read, I'm only going to read verse 7 and 8, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. We're talking about two men who were considered righteous by the Bible standards. Abraham was a righteous man, and Lot, according to 2 Peter, was a righteous man. The theme today is connection. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to look up in 1 Corinthians and kind of develop this, this concept of connection. And in 2nd, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, we're talking about a body. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body so also is Christ. We are the body of Christ. All right? Every individual here who acknowledges who God is is part of the body of Christ. Let's expound on that. Verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now catch that. By his Holy Spirit, by this vertical relationship with God, through his Spirit, we are part of the body of Christ. Every one of us. Okay? Whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I can't, I, I, I am not, I'm not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Now catch this, but God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he please. Okay? It's important to understand that. This correlation with the body, myself being a physician, we look at the body and, and, and you study it and you're just amazed at how it all works together. And we tend to value certain organs more than others. We say, well, we, we value our heart, and we value the brain, okay? We have eyes and ears and nose and throat, and all these play factors, you know. Our eyes allow us to see, our ears allow us to hear. With our mouths, we taste our food and we eat. Our digestive system breaks down our food. We have lungs, 
Again, we talked about our heart, our intestines, and our extremities. It makes us complete. It allows us to do everything. But what if one part of the body said, I am sick of those guys? Say the brain said that. I have an IQ of 240. I am sick of the rest of the body. I'm leaving. How would he leave? You set the brain aside, and what happens? It dies because it's connected or it's needing the, the oxygen and, and the glucose to keep it alive, which is supplied by another organ. The blood and the, the heart. What if the heart said, you know what? I am tired of working so hard for you guys. I'm leaving. Could he leave? You take the heart out of the, the body and it dies. So even though it appears so important without it being connected to the body, it's useless. It dies. We are the body of Christ. That first verse said that we are connected by his spirit, that vertical connection. And now it says we are connected to each other by that spirit which brings us into the body. That means I'm connected to you because I'm connected to his spirit. So if you're connected to his spirit, you're connected to me. Illustration, real quick. When I was a little boy, we used to live next to an old lumber yard. And my parents would say, don't play over there. And you know what that meant. We played over there. So we would hop the fence, we'd run and jump from plank to plank. And these were old boards that had big rusty nails sticking up. And at least three or four times, I stepped on a nail. Now, our body is made so that when you step down on the nail, you recognize that it went in your foot, but the pain isn't instant. But you have a reflex that comes from the brain that makes you pull up. And then you get this agonizing pain. And that pain is all throughout your body. It's not just in the foot. So the brain doesn't look at the foot and say, look what you did. No, the whole body hurts. I'm going to try to illustrate this in the story this morning. Pray with me, okay? We're going to start in Genesis 6. Genesis 6. And it reads, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. We're going to jump to verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And that's saying that every thought process was evil. Every imagination was evil. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Have you ever read that? Have you ever read that text? That God was sorry that he made you and me? When he saw the effects of sin and what it had done to us and how it made us, he said he was grieved in his heart. You know, my kids sometimes make decisions that grieve me, I can imagine what God goes through. But he said, I am sorry I made you guys. That should be significant. Some people say that, well, you know, when, when God made heaven and earth, 
um, when he made earth and he created Adam and Eve, that he, he programmed them to sin because that was his way to eradicate the evil that was in the universe. That was how he was going to uh, destroy Satan through the plan of salvation. But you know what? It was never God's intention for man to die or to sin. It was never his intention. His intention was for you to live forever, sinless. Death was not supposed to be part of your lifestyle. But everybody dies now. So, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is not about Noah today. But Noah preached an impossible message to an impossible people. He preached about a flood that nobody could really relate to because there was no large bodies of water. And he built a boat that nobody ever used before because there was no large bodies of water. And he said that they were going to die by flood. And he preached this message for 120 years. And it's no wonder that just him and his wife, his three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, were the only ones that got into the ark. Everybody else was destroyed. We jump up to chapter 9. The flood waters recede. God releases Noah, and he says this, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's what they did. So a group of the offspring of the three sons, years later, settle in the plains of Sinar. And they said, let's build a city. By the way, that was not God's plan. They were supposed to spread out. And then they said, let's build a tower. And so they started building the city and building this tower. And the Bible says God came down and looked at the city and looked at the tower. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, whether God needed to come down or not. But he came down, he looked, he confused their languages, and everybody scattered throughout the whole world. And it's amazing that all of us here originated from this family, Noah and his three sons. Now, we're, we're not going to talk about evolution and the, theistic evolution, but it's just amazing that that occurred. So God's changed their language. They scattered all over the world, but man now was, had a sinful nature. And it wasn't long before sin overtook most of the world again. And God works with us like a GPS. You know, you set your route, and you start down the road, and then you're not paying attention, you go down the wrong road. And what does the GPS say? Recalculating, because God's goal is to get you to heaven, is to get you back to him. So he recalculates a route. So what he does, he says, oh, they're messed up again. You know what? I'm going to choose a man who's righteous. And he looked down and he saw Abram. We call him Abraham. But his name was Abram. He looked down and he saw that he was a righteous man. And God came to him and said, in you, the world will be blessed. God came to him while he was in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was of the line of Shem. His father was named Terah, and he had brothers named Haran and Nahor. And when God came to Abraham, Abraham picked up and left Ur, and he went to a city called Haran. It can get kind of confusing because the son, one of the sons was named Haran. And there, Terah, his dad, Abram, Sarah's wife, and Nahor, they lived. But it wasn't long before Terah died. 
And now we pick it up in chapter 12 of Genesis. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Now understand what God was asking Abraham to do. You see, if God came to you and said, I want you to leave the country, I want you to leave the United States, I want you to leave your family, especially your father's house, and he says, to a land that I will show you. In essence, he's going to direct you. You don't even know where you're going. How comfortable would you feel? Would you question, is that really God? Would you question him? But this is what God was asking Abraham to do. But then he adds, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And this is the key text. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what did he do? Verse 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Abraham had no physical, visible evidence that these things were going to ever happen. But as the Bible says, you look in Romans Verses 1 and 2, it says, why was Abraham accounted righteous? What, what did he do? Was it something that he did? I mean, was it, was it like the sacrifice of his son? That's pretty significant, isn't it? They don't mention any of that. What do they mention? He believed. He believed God. And God accounted that for righteousness. Verse 5, then Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. Now, we overlooked this. The people who they had acquired in Haran. I was curious about that. So I just additional study. And you know what? I find out that Abram and Sarah were evangelists. That while they were in Haran, they were, they were evangelizing the people there, introducing them to the, to the true God. And so those people, once they accepted God, they realized that Abraham was leaving. They go, hey, you know, we're going with you. And so they left with him. This group of people, it says, went to the land of Canaan. And so they arrive in Canaan, and Canaan is a beautiful place. It's, the, the, the land is well watered. They have fields of barley and fruit trees, and, and the groves are beautiful. And Abraham is, is just overwhelmed with his beauty, but he recognized something. He said the, the people who live there, the Canaanites, they were idolaters. And they sacrifice humans on their altar. And this put a lot of fear into Abraham. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Abraham now was the patriarch. Abraham was the patriarch. We're going to spend a little time on this because this is essential for us to understand. Especially you men. I want you to understand this, what this means. Abraham was the patriarch. He looked out for his group. It was his responsibility. He was the religious leader as well as the secular leader. And so he took his group. God led him down to southern parts of Canaan. And there he set up camp. And everything looked like it was going well. And the rain stopped. And the grass died. And the rivers dried up. And it looked like they were going to starve to death. You go, wait a minute. Did I say that God was leading them? You mean, you mean God led Abraham into this, this difficult situation? This is life-threatening. An example. We have an evangelistic meeting. A lady or a man comes and they hear the word of God. And they accept Jesus in their heart. And they want to go all the way with Jesus. And so they, they say they want to get baptized. And because they want to go all the way with Jesus, Jesus, they want to be obedient to his laws. And they want to keep the Sabbath. And so they go home and they tell their spouses, you know, uh, I'm excited with this relation with Jesus, but, you know, I want to follow him all the way. And, you know, on Sabbath, you know, we used to go to the game. We're, we're, we can't do that anymore. We're, we're going to go to church. And the spouse says, wait a minute. The Sabbath is my mall day. I don't want to do that. 
Or, or say he goes to his job and he tells his employer, you know, I have this new relationship with God and, and I'm so excited about it, I want to keep the Sabbath now because the Bible says remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the employer says, you know what? Saturday is my biggest day. You've worked here for 15 years and you never said a word. I'm going to have to lay you off. So now he goes home. He already has conflict with his wife, but now he doesn't have a job. Is that the equivalent? He's doing the will of God, and the road is bumpy. Does God lead us into trouble? The three Hebrew boys, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're standing on the plains and are asked, asked to kneel, before this idol, and they don't. And the king says, okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. He says, oh, don't bother. We're not going to do that. Can you imagine what was going through their heads as they were being led to the fiery furnace? Is this it? I mean, I'm going to die. I've made my commitment to God, but this is it? And then they're thrown into the fire, and there's Jesus there with him. Isn't that awesome? There's God right there with him. Oh, what about Daniel? And oh, well, let me ask you this question. Did God save the three Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace or in it? In it. There's Daniel. He had the opportunity to pray with his windows closed. But he doesn't. He prays with his windows open. So they arrest him and they throw him into the lion's den. But he's, but he's saved by God. Did God save Daniel out of the lion's den or in it? Okay, what about Stephen? Stephen has given his testimony to the Sanhedrin. I am following the Lord no matter what. And they take him out and they stone him. And while he's being stoned, he looks up and who does he see? The Son of God. He says, he's smiling on me, but you know what? He got stoned to death. He died. Those rocks killed him. What about the Christians that came during the Roman Empire? When they wouldn't re retract their faith, they put wild animal skins on them and put them in the arena and had the lions eat them. You know, the spirit of prophecy says that the reason why this happened to Abraham was because he needed to learn submission, patience, and faith. And two, for your and our benefit. Because we want to believe that once we accept God, the road is smooth and straight. And that there's no trouble. But most of us know there's plenty of trouble in our lives. There's plenty of trouble. But it is God's way of purifying us. And he doesn't send anything to us that he doesn't think is going to purify us and help us. Let's move on. What did, what did Abraham do? He's, he's caught, there's a famine, what do I decide? He, he thought about, well, he didn't even think about going back home. You remember, God had said, get out of your country, stay away from your family. So what he did was, he decided to go down to Egypt temporarily. And then when the famine abated, he was going to come back. So on the way down to Canaan, right before he entered into the, the land, he turns to Sarah. And by the way, Abraham was 75 when he left home originally. His wife was 65. So we're, we give it two or three, four years, and you, you can say Sarah was between 65 and 70 years old. Abraham looked at Sarah and said, you are one beautiful woman. And you know what? Those Egyptians, they're going to kill me and take you. So you tell them I'm your, I'm your brother. Okay? So he gets, he gets down, into, down into Egypt, and sure enough, verse 15. Uh, let's go with 14. So it was when Abraham came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was beautiful. 
The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh. They came and took her. I thought Abraham was a righteous man, but you know, he was just like you and me. He had issues, he had struggles. He tried to do things on his own, but God protected him. What did God do? Well, first, Pharaoh sends Abraham all these gifts. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. He also sent them silver and gold. He was, in essence, paying for Sarah. But the next verse says that God plagued Pharaoh. And we don't know how he talked to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh got the message. And he got the message that Sarah was married to Abraham. And he was so disgusted. He said, why did you do that? I could have, I could have made such a terrible mistake. And he sends them out of the country, but he sends them off with gifts. And so we start off in verse 13, or chapter 13, and it says, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. In essence, he left a wealthy man. He had all his cattle. Lot had all his cattle and livestock. And they went back to Canaan, back to this area around Bethel that they had initially established. And there they set up camp and they were trying to live. But there was a problem. They had too much. See, Lot has his, had his herd, herdsmen. He had his cattle. Abram had his herdsmen and cattle. And what was happening was it wasn't enough grazing land. And so they were there, they were, their herdsmen were arguing with each other. So Abraham came to Lot, and this is what he said. He says, please, verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll take the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. This is Abraham. And remember, he is the patriarch. He was the leader. He was the one in charge. And Lot owed every blessing that he had to Abraham. It says in the spirit of prophecy that Lot showed no gratitude for his relationship with Abraham. The only reason why Lot had anything was because of Abraham. And the next verse said, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plains of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as, as you go through Zoar. The garden of the Lord? What is the garden of the Lord? Like Eden. Remember the, when, when the children of Israel sent the 12 spies into Canaan and they came back with this bushel of grapes? It had to be carried by how many men? Two men. Can you imagine grapes that big? I can't. That's amazing. Lot, Lot lifted up his eyes and he was looking over to the, the valley of Jordan. He said, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich. I'm just going to be the, one of the biggest guys around. And he thought of the city. He said, I'll be able to sell my, my livestock and sell my grain. I'm going to be rich. But there was a caveat here. Verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, either Lot knew that and didn't care, or he was just completely ignorant of it. And so he divided, he separated from Abraham, and he took his group. He took his group, and they moved into the plains. Now, his group, we don't know how big it is. We're going to come to this later. But he took his group, and he became the patriarch of that group. 
This is important. He took this group and he moved to Sodom. And the Bible says, it says that in Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. I like the King James Version says, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Abraham moved up farther into the plain and God came to him and said, look, all this land is going to go to your descendants. Doesn't matter who got what, all this is going to go to your descendants. The next chapter deals with the Edomites. Um, did, I, I, did I say that correctly? The Elamites, or as Edomites. Anyway, this, comp- this, this kingdom had had conquered Sodom and Gomorrah 14 years earlier. And they had him under tribute. And the princes of Sodom and Gomorrah said, we're not paying you anymore, we're done. And so the Elamite king got his army, got his allies, and he came down to fight the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and their armies. So the, the cities got their armies together and they went into battle and they got totally annihilated. Then the Edomites came down and they spoiled the city. They just took everything, took all the riches, all the gold, and they took Lot and his family. One escaped, made his way up to where Abraham was, and told Abraham what had happened. Now, don't think Abraham is not human. He knew that Lot chose the best. But look at his heart. Verse 14, chapter 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went as far as Dan after them. 318 trained servants. I was curious about that. So I did a little study and I said, well, how many people were in the house of Abraham? I mean, we really don't have an exact number, but this says it was 318 that were born in his house, and they were trained. What were they trained in? They were trained in the fear of God, okay? They were also trained in the art of war. You see, today, somebody's breaking in your house. If you have a chance, you call 911, and hopefully, Modesto police will come. But in those days, there was no 911. You were it. And so they were trained in warfare, 318. So we guesstimate that with women and children and herdsmen and, and manservants, man and female servants, etc., that Abraham's group was probably about 1,000 people. To make a long story short, Abraham had allies. They took their allies. They went after the Edomites. They conquered them, and they brought everybody back. This was the exposure that Sodom and Gomorrah had to the real God, okay? Brought Lot and his family back. We're going to skip a a few chapters. But I want to emphasize this. Abraham was the patriarch of his home. And even God himself mentioned the faithfulness of Abraham. If we jump up to chapter 18 and we look at verse 19, it says, For I have known him. This is the Lord speaking, talking about Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken of him. Abraham could be trusted to to lead his family, his group, in the way of the Lord. He commanded them in the way of the Lord. That was his job. That was his position. And you know when Lot took his group into the the valley there? Lot became that man. Let's go on with the story. We're going to jump over to chapter 18. Remember that Abraham was a wealthy man. He's sitting outside his tent. And he he sees three visitors standing in front of him. 
He runs out to meet them. And let's read this. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourself under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may be refreshed, that you may refresh your heart. After that, you may pass inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Go ahead and do it. And so Abram went and prepared a feast. Abraham was a big wig. He was a wealthy man. Look how he acted with strangers. He bowed, invited them in. Well, it just so happened that after they stopped eating, one of the men turned to Abram and said, Where's Sarah? How did he know his wife was Sarah? He knew because he was the Lord. He was the son of God. And he gave him a promise of a son. He gave him a promise of a son. And right before he left, he turned, he sent his two angels on, and he says, I'm going to confide with you what my plans are. He says, now we're in verse 20 of chapter 18. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very great, grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it, that it comes to me. And if not, I will know. Did, did you hear that? The Son of God is saying, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to, I'm going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to look at the city and see whether... What's been said of them is true, and if not, I will know. But he already knew. Didn't, didn't he already know? Why did he do that? Why did he express himself that way? He has expressed himself this way in other ways, in other times. Adam and Eve, he's looking for Adam. They've sinned. He's looking for Adam. He's calling Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And what are they doing? They're hiding. And, he, and finally, Adam answers. He says, I hid myself because I was naked. What does he ask Adam? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Was, he, was God on the other side of the universe and didn't know this had happened? Not at all. God knew what was happening. What was he doing? He was investigating the situation. He was presenting it before the sinner himself, investigating them, then making a judgment. What was he doing? He was giving us an example of how he deals with humans. That's what he was doing. And so he tells, he tells Abraham that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, 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 so, and Abraham now, his mind is buzzing because you know what? His nephew's there. And you can see, you can see it in his brain. He's like, he's, he's thinking, oh my God. My nephew's there. And, and, and the Lord just lingered because I know the Lord wanted him to have this conversation. And so he, he, I could see Abraham kind of soltering up to, to the Lord and he says... I'm going to read it. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Understand what Abraham is doing. Because sometimes we get the impression that he's pleading for those 50 righteous if they're there. But no, he's pleading for the whole city. For all those wicked people, he's pleading for their lives. And listen to him. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. What a statement for Abraham to say to the Son of God, knowing that he was going to die for these wicked people anyway. And so... This is what the Lord said. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. Did you catch that? God said, if there are 50 righteous people just in the city, 
then all those wicked people could be spared. Just 50. You know, Abraham started thinking now. You know, because he... he, And see, I, I want you to catch this concept. Lot had his group. Lot was responsible for his group, just like Abraham was. Abraham's group may have been a thousand. Lot, we don't really know, could have been two or three hundred. Abraham is saying, I know 50 is a safe number, but then he started thinking about it. Ooh, Sodom's a bad place. Ooh, man. What if there's five less, Lord? Forgive me, I'm just dust. And the Lord said, well, if there's 45, I will not destroy the whole place. And Abraham kept on going down. And he got down to 10. What if there's just 10? Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the Lord said, no. Now think about this, folks. Because we can put this in our time. If there are 10 righteous people in the city, then I will not destroy the whole city. That's what he was saying. Just 10. 10 righteous folk. Lord went his way. And I suppose Abraham went his way, thinking, perhaps I have saved them. We jump into chapter 19. Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of the gates of Sodom. There was a reason why he sat at the gate. When Lot saw them, he rose and met them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. Where did he get that from? He had been taught by his uncle. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go your way. And they said, No, we'll be okay. We'll spend it in the open square. But look at that next verse. But he insisted strongly. You see, Lot knew. That's why he was at the gate in the first place. He was intercepting men to keep them from being attacked. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And he called to Lot, and this is what they said. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them cardinally. And you know what that means. And I hope you caught that verse. It says, the men of the city, both old and young, all the people from all the quarters, it was their tradition. It was, all the people would gang rape the men who visited that city. That was their tradition. Lot comes out, he tries to appease him, he says, oh, take my daughters. Take my daughters. I'm glad we don't live in that era. <laughs> and they said, no, we're not interested in your daughters. We want those men. And they were going to attack him and break down the door. But then the, the men revealed who they were. They were angels. And they blinded the group, pulled Lot in. And this is the message he gave him. Verse 12, then the man said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-laws, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city. Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against it has, been, has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, this is crucial. Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws, who were married to his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this place. But to his sons-in-laws, he seemed to be dro- joking. And just that first verse, when the morning dawned. You see, Lot was out all night long looking for the people who were under his charge. Understand what Lot had to do. He knew his responsibility, and he had failed. He did not lead his group in the fear of the Lord, as he was required. And now he's looking for them. He spent all night talking to them, and he's, he's baffled. He's distressed because he knows the end result of them. And it says, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. He lingered. 
He lingered. He, he couldn't believe he was losing his whole family. And God in his mercy, it says, and while he lingered, the man took hold of his hands, his wife's hands, the hands of his two daughters. And the Lord, being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so when it came to pass, when they had brought him outside, that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot said, no, 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 don't send me to the mountains. There's nothing in the mountains. Let me go to Zoar. Well, that place was supposed to be destroyed too, but God spared it for a little bit anyway. And as they were entering into Zoar, fire came down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And his wife, Lot's wife, turned and looked back. Now, why did she look back? She looked back because her heart was in Sodom. There was her daughters, her children, other children, her grandchildren. She had this beautiful home. They had it made. They had all, all her material things. It was so nice. And I'm leaving to go live in the forest. And she looked back. Her heart was in Sodom. So God turned into a pillow of salt. And only Lot and his two daughters escaped. They initially were in Zoar. But it was too rough there. Those people were wicked. And they ended up living in a cave. And we'll come to the close here, and i got to move real quick. They're living in a cave. And this is the point I'm trying to make here. Now the firstborn, I'm reading verse 31 in chapter 19. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is no man on earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Where did those girls get that? You think they learned that from Lot? You see the insignificance of the surroundings? You see the significance, how it changed the mindset? It doesn't matter what Lot did. He could not change the influence that was happening there. And so even though he had escaped, he'd escaped with his daughters, but their minds were the same. Their minds were the same. And so it says, the first one got his father drunk, and she slept with him. Then the next night, they got her father drunk again, and the younger one slept with him. And they produced two nations. It said, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the people of the Ammonites. What do we know about these two groups of people? We know that they were idolatrous people that they long ago gave up worship of the true God. God initially would not allow the children of Israel to destroy the Ammonites. The Ammonites ultimately attacked the Israelites, and then, and then they were utterly destroyed. The Moabite story is a little more interesting. On the second time around, the king of the Moabites, Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel. You remember that story? He couldn't curse him because Israel was, was pure. And so Balak sent Balaam away, and he was angry. But Balaam came back because he had been offered riches. And this is what he said. You get them to sin, and God will curse them. And so they sent the ladies in. They said, send the ladies and make them, free, make them very friendly to the men. And they committed harlotry with the women. And pretty soon they were worshiping their God. And to make a long story short, 23,000 men died because of that. God avenged them, though. He sent their armies in. And he killed all of the Moabites, all the men, all the women who had been with the men. And all the boys, all the male childs were killed. It totally kind of annihilated them. Two wicked nations. So, okay, second coming. God comes, the dead in Christ rise first, and those who are left rise up to see him. That first thousand years... We're studying, you know, 
Abraham is looking around and he sees all kinds of his people, all his family, and he's all so happy. But Lot's looking around and, you know, he sees nobody. He doesn't see his wife. He doesn't see his daughters or, his, or, or anybody that was in his group. He doesn't see anybody that he was responsible for, and he can't help but go back. He can't help but go back and think of that time when he made that decision. For wealth, I'm going to move to the plains of Jordan. For wealth, I'm going to expose my family to the sin. We are the body of Christ. Every individual here is part of that body. We are part of the body because God has united us by his spirit. Okay? Because of this vertical relationship, it establishes our horizontal relationship. When you hurt, I hurt because I'm part of the body. When we act like a cancer and we sever this relationship with God, that cancer can spread and destroy the body of Christ. Okay? Unlike cancer, which at times we cure, sometimes we don't. This is a sin problem. And there's an answer for the sin problem. And that's reestablishing that spiritual relationship with God. So when this is right, I'm going to treat you right. When this is right... I'm going to be compassionate to you. When this is right, I'm going to treat you like I'm supposed to treat you. That's the plan of God. Today, connect yourself to the source that allows you to vertically connect or to horizontally connect with each other. Because that is the will of God. Father, thank you for your word. We all struggle with getting along with each other. We know, Lord, the answer is you, becoming more like you. We pray, Father, that you will connect us together, first to you for eternity, then to each other. Then when one of us hurt, we all hurt. When all of us do good, we all do good. We praise you, Lord, for giving us that analogy. In Jesus' name, amen.